I think it might almost be more like a meme than a cult, a meme of personality, if you will, but one that's fiercely managed by the state. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Amanda and Andy. China today is undergoing tremendous domestic changes, while it is adopting a bolder foreign policy, giving rise to Sino-American competition. At the center of it all is Xi Jinping, the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, the President of China, and the paramount leader for nearly 10 years. What changes to China have Xi Jinping made? Does Xi's rule mark a clear break from the reform era that started under Deng Xiaoping? Dr. Andrew Murtha joins us today on the podcast to discuss China under Xi Jinping. Dr. Andrew Murtha is the Vice Dean for Faculty Affairs and International Research Cooperation, George and Sadie Hyman Professor of China Studies, and Director of the China Studies Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS. Murtha specializes in Chinese bureaucratic politics, political institutions, and the domestic and foreign policy process. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. First off, can you give a brief introduction of Xi Jinping to our listeners? Uh, who is he and what does his power to or his uh, journey to power look like? So thanks for the question, Andy. Uh, so Xi Jinping is the fifth leader of the People's Republic of China, uh, sixth if you count Hua Guofang. Uh, he succeeds Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao. Xi himself was born in 1953. He was the son of one of the early founders of the PRC, that is Xi Zhongshun. Uh, the elder Xi was a pretty remarkable figure who more than once put him on, himself on the wrong side of Mao. Uh, eventually he was purged in 1962 and sent to manage a tractor factory in central China. Uh, rehabilitated after the death of Mao, Xi Zhongshun was a pivotal figure in the early reforms as a leader of uh, Guangdong province and was one of the few leaders who defied the political trends that eventually led to the June 4th, 1989 crackdown. He retired in 1988. Now, Xi Jinping, he lived the cloistered life of uh, the children of ranking cadres until his father's purge. Uh, so during the Cultural Revolution, she uh, was sent down, exiled at the age of 16 to Yanchuan County in Xianxi province. Uh, at the same time, one of his sisters committed suicide um, and uh, estranged uh, or exiled from his family. He ultimately stayed in uh, Xianxi for seven years. Incredibly, in retrospect, he applied to join the Chinese Communist Party some 10 times before finally being accepted in 1974. I would also say that his rise was long and anything but preordained. It was tough and he took many steps to get to the top of the system. This included stints in the military administration. He was the secretary to Gang Biao, who was secretary of the Central Military Commission. He was a county level party secretary in Jiangding County in Hebei. He was the deputy mayor of Xiamen and then the party secretary of Fuzhou and eventually the governor of Fujian province. He was the party secretary of Zhejiang province and he was president of the central party school. So he has a pretty impressive resume, uh, but a lot of it was, was governing and a lot of it was unlike Jiang Zemin, for example, who, arose, who rose through the ranks in uh, 
not exclusively, but largely through um, the, the, the various ministries. Uh, Xi Jinping was very much um, a, 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 a product of governing in very uh, different and diverse locales within China. I mention all this because there's a tendency to draw a straight line between the kind of selective formative experiences and matching them up with the current behaviors and worldviews of, of certain leaders. Um, and I think the reality is far more complex, particularly with Xi Jinping. Um, I think to get to the second part of your question, I think what we can say with confidence is that Xi Jinping is pretty much all about getting to the core, getting to the foundation, getting to the nexus of power. Uh, other things are largely secondary. I think his formative years seem to have told him that politics have very real, tangible, uh, and potentially overwhelming consequences. It is not a game for amateurs, sycophants, or for those unwilling to put in the arduous but important work of being a Chinese official. He seems to have concluded that at the end of the day, there are very few people that he can trust. Uh, his confidant, Liu He, is a fellow elementary school chum, and she met his conciliary, Wang Qishan, during his most vulnerable personal and professional time in rural Xiangxi. Think about it. China has upwards of 95 million Chinese Communist Party members, 2 million leading cadres, and 8 million government workers. How do you manage this when you count the number of people that you actually trust on the fingers of one hand? So that, I think, is kind of the way in which I see or understand Xi Jinping, um, and how he how he rose through the system, what his formative experiences are, and how that has led to his current worldview or his view on politics. So I think Xi Jinping's uh, solution, as you mentioned, too, or one, one, uh, one of the problems that he's facing is kind of controlling this massive uh, group of people that he needs to ensure are really uh, loyal to him and are operating according to his orders. And I think uh, several people have argued that one of his uh, strategies towards accomplishing this is to set up a cult of personality similar to that of uh, Mao Zedong's. And I was wondering if you agree with this assessment, and if so, uh, what he's actually doing to accomplish this? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Um, I think cult of personality is a loaded term. So let me give you a little bit of context. So I was too young to travel to China during the height of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, but I did get close to something like that when I visited Romania in 1987 uh, during the height of, the, of Nicolae Ceausescu's reign. Um, and, they were, and the current cult of personality around Xi Jinping is really nothing like that. I mean, that was really something that was all-consuming um, and there was very little uh, room for really anything outside of it. it. It hated a vacuum and it filled every space. So despite being tagged with the moniker of uh, Lin Xiu, uh, I don't think that you can really put kind of the level of um, the kind of centrality of Xi Jinping in Chinese political life um, up to that of, of Mao Zedong. Um, there is a general respect for strong leadership in China, 
especially when framed in nationalist terms. And she is not the only post-Mao leader to have dabbled this in, in this. So he's not the only post-Mao leader to have dabbled in this. But he is the most, if you will, shameless, uh, especially when you contrast him to his immediate predecessor, Hu Jintao, who was very much a, a backroom kind of consensus building leader. I think what she has done is concluded from his predecessor that consensus wasn't getting the job done. And so the personality cult, such as it is, represents the confluence of a number of things. First, how do you maintain control over the regime's messaging over 1.4 billion people in an increasingly tech-heavy information environment in which social media incentivizes its, loser, its users, rather, I guess that was a Freudian slip, where social media incentivizes its users to adopt extreme opinions in China and elsewhere. This personality cult is also, and this is probably a little bit controversial, but it's also a little bit of a chicken soup for the political soul in that it's uh, a film, a familiar, maybe even comforting um, uh, kind of messaging platform for uh, a number of Chinese over uh, and above a certain age within an environment of increasing uncertainty and potentially insecurity and in which younger people in China as anywhere else pay less attention to. Um, I think it might almost be more like a meme than a cult, a meme of personality, if you will, but one that's fiercely managed by the state. I think second, its simplicity is its power. And this does in fact harken back to Maoism where some of the most fundamental changes that utterly transformed Chinese society were often the simplest ones. In this case, if you're not sure what to do, how to behave, take the conservative course of action. Don't stick your head out over your skis. But at the end of the day, know that if you do get out of line, it won't go unnoticed. I think in that respect, I would be far more concerned about high-tech surveillance and AI in China than I would be about a Xi Jinping cult per se. That's really interesting. So you just kind of walked us through the extent to which she maintains his power. And I kind of want to dive a little bit more into that. So how much control does she have over the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government, given this meme of personality, if you will? So it is, it's really, it's really a good question because uh, in a sense, she's been uh, moving in the opposite direction to which things have been trending. So under Jiang Zemin, he had a very strong uh, premier, Zhu Rongji. Um, under Hu Jintao, you had the Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao or the Hu Wen uh, leadership. Uh, under Xi, it's really Xi um, and uh, Li Keqiang is very much kind of seen as, as an afterthought um, in kind of the, the, the general way in which the leadership is, 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 is conceptualized, uh, at least on the outside. Um, and this is no accident. So she has a diverse portfolio that's undoubtedly helped him consolidate power. And it also provides a non-trivial degree of credibility to his approach to governance. Um, so he has uh, strong uh, uh, experience in the government, in the party apparatus, um, and indirectly uh, to the military. 
Um, his control, I think, of the party is as strong as any previous Chinese leader and certainly stronger than his two immediate predecessors. Moreover, he has substantially and dramatically enhanced the power of the Chinese Communist Party relative to the government. What do I mean by that? Xi has really gone where no Chinese leader, perhaps, um, except for Mao, uh, has gone before in dramatically raising the profile of the Chinese Communist Party, in supervising, uh, as well as, in many cases, displacing uh, the traditional government agencies charged with managing policies traditionally out of the direct purview of the party. Uh, this institutional change has been, for me anyway, the most dramatic, and yet it's been one of the most invisible um, changes uh, under Xi Jinping, uh, with repercussions, I think, for the entire country. Um, and I think we're still unsure about the prospects for success. Are we going to see even more vicious bureaucratic infighting within China? What does the state operate, or how, what does it operate, and how does it operate, when the government is marginalized and colonized by an overtly political organization at the scale at which it's taking place. And another question would be, has Xi's prioritization of a surveillance state transcended being a means to an end through mission creep become an end to itself? The jury is still out, but the implications are staggering in scope. So what we're really seeing is through a network of, and I'm gonna use some technical terms here, which uh, uh, may turn some casual uh, listeners off, um, but it might be a good um, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, litmus test for people who wanna take my courses. There are things called leadership small groups, uh, which are configurations of top leaders um, that are created uh, around certain policy areas. And we have them in the Chinese Communist Party. We have them in the Chinese government. Uh, we even have them in the Chinese military. Uh, but what we're seeing here is not only is she creating more and more leadership small groups, which uh, potentially move the, the um, center of power away from these traditional institutions like ministries or departments, uh, but he's also... Uh, using leadership small groups that are party leadership small groups, and he's placing them within traditionally government-controlled areas of governance. And he's also leading a number of them personally himself. So this is really uh, unprecedented uh, since the beginning of reform. And again, we're kind of midway through, or because of the uh, doing away of term limits, uh, you know, maybe less than halfway through, uh, but certainly uh, it is open-ended in terms of how this is going to play out. Uh, but it is, he has not gotten the pushback that people like, for example, Jiang Zemin or uh, his predecessor, Zhao Ziyang had in terms of trying to set, uh, in the case of Zhao Ziyang, trying to separate out the government from the party and in the case of Jiang Zemin, trying to bring the party more into governance. So you, you talked about how, you know, under Xi Jinping, there was a changed conception of leadership organization compared to Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao, you know, increased power and profile of the Communist, Communist Party, formation of multiple leading small groups throughout the Communist Party and government. So should we think about these changes as a clear change 
from uh, the political structure established in the reform era under Deng Xiaoping, or is this just a another, you know, a slight development from the uh, existing political structure and institutions that has been developed um, uh, since the reform era? So it's a great question, and uh, I'm not confident in terms of being able to answer that question uh, in a way that would be necessarily satisfying to uh, our listeners. But I think it speaks to a more important truth, and that is when you look at institutional evolution in China over time, it is constantly changing. Constantly. Um, and this, you know, so if you, you know, pick a ministry, you know, pick a bureaucracy, pick a, you know, pick a, 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 a formal position for a leader, what you're going to see is over time, it is changed, folded, expanded, contracted, uh, and um, adapted to any number of different things, which may include outside uh, external shocks, um, the power of personalities, um, a kind of given policy priority, you know, of uh, 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 an influential group of leaders at any one given time, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't see this necessarily um, uh, as, as your question might imply that this is kind of a break with uh, reform, uh, but rather kind of a doubling down on control, party control, within a still evolving China um, that can still trace its political DNA to the reform era prior to Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned that, you know, the changes under Xi Jinping just are so much more uh, intense than what has been in the past. And like you mentioned, Jiang Zemin and his uh, attempts to reform, that got a lot of pushback. And then, so is there a reason why Xi Jinping is not getting as big of a pushback from the party or the, um, throughout the Chinese government and state? It's a great question. I think that, you know, I don't want to mischaracterize Jiang Zemin because I think he's not given... Uh, props that he has, I think, fully earned for undertaking some of the most painful and difficult uh, 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 decisions, particularly uh, regarding state-owned enterprise reform. Uh, and so he was juggling with a number of, uh, a number of different things uh, simultaneously, um, and he was able to get uh, a lot accomplished uh, that people certainly at the beginning of his tenure didn't think he was even remotely <laughs> capable of, of doing. Um, I think Xi Jinping is less a reaction to Jiang Zemin as much as a reaction to Hu Jintao. So I think for Xi, you can see that some of his policy priorities are similar to Hu Jintao. So for example, uh, Tearing down income inequality, for example, maybe not as dramatically as Hu Jintao, but nonetheless, tearing on that mantle. Uh, the idea of China becoming a global, not simply recipient of foreign direct investment, but a generator of foreign direct investment. Again, that began under Hu Jintao, but it's really mushroomed under, you know, it's exploded 
under uh, uh, Xi Jinping. But I think the, what the lesson that Xi Jinping learned was that consensus was not what China needed at this particular point in time. And so it matched up with his own kind of tendencies towards um, kind of more singular decision-making and singular rule. And I think when you combine that with what he saw as kind of the necessary steps of anti-corruption crackdowns uh, within, you know, in order, you know, for a number of reasons, but I think primarily to reorient the economy in a direction that otherwise would not happen because Hu Jintao had tried to do the same thing without success, um, that um, the crackdowns that he became associated with uh, were actually fundamental, not only to his attempts to shape the economy, but also to define his style of rule. I think as we've covered, Xi has certainly brought about this sort of mass uh, political change in China. And we spoke a bit about his policy goals, but I was wondering, how would you characterize his goal for China? What does he see as China's future, both in the short term and the long term? I think that Xi has several balls in the air right now. First, I think he needs to handmade in China away from this export-led manufacturing model that has served China so well for a generation, even more, uh, to a more higher-tech, consumption-based economy. So the complementary nature of China's and the U.S.'s economic relationship that Ed Steinfeld referred to as China's playing our game is now decidedly a lot more complicated. I think recent spats over Huawei and TikTok only reinforced China's leaders thinking that some sort of delinkage is necessary for China to succeed, uh, essentially to gain its independence from um, this uh, US-driven and, and, and Western-enabled um, uh, 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 economic order. But how China manages to do this through what has been labeled uh, dual circulation is essentially through a combination of market infirming industrial policy combined with the creation of an international market dependency on China, which is made possible by Belt and Road Initiative. I think infrastructure is only the beginning. I think integrated markets benefiting China at the risk of, or at the cost of uh, U.S. access to those markets will follow. Uh, I don't think it's irrational for C to tie these things together like this, but he's betting against the house and he's betting big. What, if we're talking about uh, the relationship with, uh, between the United States and China, uh, what strikes me is just how quickly the U.S. is springing back to life uh, after four years of uh, the Trump administration's foreign policy. So in Joe Biden's first 100 days, among other things, it brought about a, a rallying of our international allies, which underscores the fact that part of what contributed to China's rapid dominance over the past decade was a combination of the Obama administration's somewhat conflict aversion uh, and the Trump administration's 
in my view, abdication of the U.S.'s traditional international responsibilities. And so this has had the effect of making China's rise over the past four years seem a tad more inevitable than has actually been the case. Um, to the extent that Chinese leaders understand and accept that, I think is going to be uh, critical. Um, and my own sense is that China's pointed characterizations of the United States' social, political, economic challenges are not completely wrong, or rather there's plenty of data to support such claims. Um, and I think that the Chinese genuinely believe that. China's long view of history frames China's rise as its return to its natural place, which is at the head of the global pecking order, during which any real or perceived sign of weakness would reverberate dangerously and negatively within the Chinese state, as well as throughout Chinese society. I think that China's leaders have been remarkably successful in transforming the country over the past generation and a half faster and at a greater scale than has ever been the case anywhere at any time in the past. The challenge will be moving forward, how does China graft such a formula onto a world that is extraordinarily diverse and free from central mandates in terms of which direction and at which pace it chooses to evolve? That's the real question. And finally, what I would say in terms of the tone, because you know, this leads to kind of how China sees itself and how others see China as it plays out on the international stage. I think there's a set of unrealistic expectations on the part of China. And I know this is going to get me in trouble, but uh, it seems that uh, China's leaders and uh, a number of its, uh, of its citizens measure China's global power and influence in part by the decrease or even the disappearance of criticism leveled at China. I think that gets it exactly wrong. As a US citizen, so as the citizen of what has been a post-World War II hegemon, every time I go abroad, going back to the 1970s, I would be regularly confronted by the din of criticism and sometimes even sharply anti-American rhetoric from whoever my interlocutors might be. In other words, being the lightning rod for international criticism is the cross that global hegemons necessarily bear. It concerns me for our sake, but also for China's sake, that this idea is so anathema to so many people in China, because I think ultimately it is a symptom of a, to use a Maoist uh, turn of phrase, a, a contradiction between aspirations, expectations, and harsh reality. So part of that, uh, you know, increasingly acerbic rhetoric, both on, you know, on either side of the emerging Sino-American competition is that, you know, there are Chinese diplomats nicknamed the wolf warriors that have been employing increasingly harsh rhetoric, both like in terms of like principles at the as we saw in the recent Alaska summit and like the regular press briefings in Beijing um, how, how do you think they fit into Xi's global ambitions and um, like, should we pay attention to them? Yeah, thanks very much for that question. I think that's also gonna get me into a little bit of hot water. Um, but um, 
I don't think it's a great look for any country, uh, but I think it's a particularly bad one for China. Why is that? Well, although I think that his analysis is a bit too romantic on this point, there's something to be said about Henry Kissinger's comparison of the Chinese and Soviet negotiating styles, for example. The Soviets thuggishly argued over every single detail, no matter how minor, while the Chinese effortlessly tabled or assumed away seemingly monumental issues while focusing laser-like on the larger ones, all the while creating the effect that China was much, much stronger than it actually was at the time. It's really quite brilliant um, you know, if you go back and look at it. The wolf warrior phenomenon, I think, does exactly the opposite. It makes a strong China look weaker than it is, or at least more difficult to take seriously. It exudes an arrogant lack of self-confidence, which is not only, of course, the opposite of its intended effect. I think it is not an accurate portrayal of, of China worldview as well as kind of the, 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 if one can even generalize about the Chinese psyche, it is not something that uh, I think um, does it the tremendous justice that it deserves. I mean, to be sure, Deng Xiaoping's toughness as a neg negotiator is the stuff of legend. But he was all smiles once the meeting room doors opened and the cameras started flashing. I think the purpose of today's very public hard-edged diplomacy is probably several fold. First, it's a signal to an increasingly nationalist citizenry in China that China is no longer being pushed around, uh, scratching the itch of the century of humiliation by foreign powers narrative. That's not insignificant. I think it's also a tactic that might mitigate pushback on the other side of the negotiating table. I'm reminded during the 1990s when the United States trade representative um, was negotiating with China, one of the tactics that the U.S. used was precisely this kind of wolf warrior uh, diplomacy and just being rude to the Chinese, deliberately rude, by somebody who was actually trained as a specialist in Chinese history and culture. So he knew which buttons to push. Um, I remember the Chinese, uh, when I was uh, doing research on this back in the, uh, in the late 1990s, the Chinese would ask me, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> you know? And my, uh, you know, my response was, yeah, I kind of on behalf of, uh, yeah, I apologize. <laughs> it's not really the way to, uh, it's not the way, uh, you know, civilized people negotiate. Um, but, you know, it was effective. I think it also is a way of Beijing optically flexing its muscles for all the world to see, kind of lining up international rhetoric with domestically channeled rhetoric. Unfortunately, like I said before, I think it plays very, very badly outside of China. And thus, I think it's largely ineffective as a strategy. And I know that some Chinese diplomats are acutely aware of this, but they're largely powerless to stop it. They just have to grin, or in this case, scowl and bear it. Professor Martha, I've absolutely enjoyed this podcast. Um, and I want to ask our final question for today, um, which is, I think 
always when I ask these kinds of questions to our guests, the, the common answer is we don't know yet, but I'll try and ask you to predict the future anyways. Um, so our last question is, uh, what is next for She's China? And we talked a little bit about um, the abolition of term limits. So can we even imagine a post-Xi China right now, or is that too early to speculate? So asking you to predict the future, which of course is always an impossible task, especially I'm sure with Xi's China. So thank you for asking that impossible to answer question. Um, it's impossible to answer for a number of reasons, um, but even though I can't necessarily answer it directly, let me see if I can get at it somewhat indirectly. I think first of all, uh, and then I'd, I'd like to also respond to um, um, your invocation of term limits, because I think that that also is kind of domestically something that uh, I think we should uh, keep an eye on. Internationally, I think it's really important to look at China's behavior, not China come China, but also in relation to uh, the United States. Uh, and I think in a sense of what we've seen in China is a reaction to what US policy might be at that time. And it is something that we forget about in the United States. Um, and we do so um, at the risk of being surprised five or 10 years down the road and see how, how far China's gotten in such a short period of time. What I do think is that the four years of the Trump administration really represents a, a fundamental break with the past as well as with the future. I really do think of it as an anomaly. And it would not behoove anybody, the Chinese, Americans, our allies, our adversaries, to think that that is the new trajectory. Um, I think it's really important for us to think about the current attempts by the Biden administration as a resetting of the course that is closer to what the Trump administration faced when it came into power rather than what it left when it when the uh, when Trump um, uh, stepped down from uh, uh, from uh, office on January 20th so what this means is in a sense China got a really wonderful opportunity to do a lot of things in a relatively unconstrained manner that I think benefited China quite a bit. Uh, and I think China can build on it. Uh, and I think if I were one of China's leaders, I would want to build on it. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that the overall international environment is quite a bit different. Um, and so these relatively easier gains are going to be a bit more difficult moving forward, but that's just the nature of kind of this kind of restoration of the relationship onto something that is a bit more complicated. I think generally speaking, uh, U.S.-China relations really got bad under the Trump administration, but they were fairly simplistic. Um, I do think that they will likely get 
at, um, uh, at least marginally better under the Biden administration, but they will be more complex and more complicated. And I think that's a good thing. Domestically, your question really raises uh, uh, an important issue, and that is kind of longevity of Xi's rule. Um, it's a challenging one because I think reasonable, even extremely knowledgeable people can and do disagree. I don't think it, this shift in term limits for, for Xi's position, I don't think it's a clear change from the norms that were established under Deng Xiaoping because the norms themselves were followed actually only once or perhaps at most only one and a half times. That is the succession of Hu Jintao after Jiang Zemin was an inelegant affair, even though it was widely anticipated, particularly over the most important position in China, and that was the chairmanship of the Military Affairs Commission or the military, Central Military Commission, which Jiang awkwardly clung onto, even when it had gone past the, the, the polite period of transferring it over to his successor. I think the only fully realized transfer of power was ironically from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. So it is not as, it's not as if a long standing ironclad tradition had been reached, which is the way in which uh, it plays out a lot. That said, even if it is not a clear change, I think it is a potentially dangerous development for several reasons. Many people think that Chinese institutions are not particularly strong that they are overwhelmed by the party apparatus or they're constantly being eroded as Chinese officials seek to subvert them, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not wrong, but it's also incomplete. The Chinese institutions that are strong are very strong indeed. And much like what we learned under the Trump presidency, norms are far more important than we give them credit for in terms of reining in even the strongest of leaders. The same is true in China. Therefore, what was still a fragile norm was something that nonetheless had the potential to eventually truly constrain and shape behavior for China's top leader and those around him. It brought a measure of predictability. It reassured officials at all levels of the system that the system itself had its rules and that the cadres who worked very hard early in their careers would be suitably rewarded for their hard work down the line. And it softened the contours of Chinese authoritarianism while also suggesting a genuinely novel model of smooth and stable political transition without democratic elections as a possible inspiration or even an exportable model to other non-democracies. But now China is seen as quote, just another country ruled by a strong man, unquote. That's, of course, dangerously simplistic, but it is the takeaway for a lot of people. Put differently, before this move, China looked a lot more like a desirable partner than Russia did under Putin. Now, that's far from clear. All of that being said, I think it's important to emphasize that the U.S.-China relationship is by far the most important bilateral relationship in the world today and for the foreseeable future. And despite the very real and very deep differences uh, that exist, certainly between the governments of the two countries, uh, as well as the historical experiences of its people, uh, there is, to me, nothing 
more satisfying and nothing gives me as much confidence in the human condition than the US and China being able to overcome the differences that, they, that exist in order to chart a future in which our relationship is one that buoys each other and the rest of the world rather than trying to dunk the other one uh, underwater. So I'm generally hopeful, but uh, you know, it is an optimism uh, that has, or it is an optimism with eyes wide open at the challenges ahead. Well, thank you so much for coming in today, Dr. Murtha. Uh, I think we really enjoyed having you on the show today. It was a lot of fun, hopefully, uh, and thank you all. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.